Hi there, amazing human. Thank you so much for joining me on my podcast. My name is Aaliyah and we're here to talk all things confidence, empowerment and transformation. If that sounds like your type of thing, stick around and let's get down to business. So in the first episode, it makes complete sense for me to actually tell you why it is that I'm actually on this journey and how I came about to be on this journey. Because let's be honest, why would you actually bother tuning into any podcast unless it was beneficial to you and actually understood what the person behind it was trying to achieve? Now, I want to be completely transparent with you. Most of the information that I share with you, most of the actual hints and tips and things that we come across together are things that I've actually either tried, come across or actually have designed and they've benefited somebody else along my journey. So to cut a very long story short, I'm going to rewind back to 2004, which is where my story pretty much on this journey started. I was fresh out of uni and as a good brown girl, I went along with the arranged marriage scenario. So I was presented with a person that could potentially be the one and being a good girl that I was, I didn't really question any of it because arranged marriages were quite the norm for the family and still are to some extent. And I went along with it and he seemed like an all right type of person. I was told that he came from a good family. His father was hardworking. He had no reason to marry somebody British and come to the UK because his family were quite well off and had a lot of abundance so they really weren't going to be using me for my passport etc etc and like I said being a good brown girl that I am I went along with it and was like okay fair enough I'll do it I had my education and I felt this was going to be the next step in the actual process so I went along with it. So I accepted this potential match, so to speak, and soon after got married. And within literally days of being married, things start to unravel at rocket speed. It turns out a lot of the stuff that I was told was actually basically lies. He wasn't educated. His education was pretty much fake. He'd actually purchased certificates and so on and so forth. His family did lack abundance. They didn't have the money that they claimed to have. And they were quite disrespectful from the word go. And I really was in a hard place because here I was, a young person in a marriage that I was being told was suitable. I was told this match was suitable. I was told his family were compatible and... I was there thinking, if I say anything now, it's going to look like I'm copping out. I'm saying, no, I don't want to be in this marriage anymore. I don't want to take this person to the United Kingdom, even though I'm being told he doesn't want to go to the UK. But within hours of the marriage, I was being asked when he was going to be going to the UK. So I was thinking to myself, oh, what have I gone and done? And at that stage, when you're that young, you think to yourself, okay, maybe it's just my imagination maybe I'm just overthinking things and at one stage I even questioned whether or not I was too western in my way of thinking which you could understand being born and bred in England and suddenly being thrust into the homeland and the culture and everything else that surrounds it so I started to think about it and I started to question my sanity as well but I gave it time I thought to myself okay I'm gonna have some patience in the matter I'm overreacting so didn't think anything of it so got married, spent a few weeks um, abroad in the homeland of Pakistan and then came back to the UK and pretty much things kept going downhill. Um, There was no actual interest from my now ex-husband 
um, whatsoever in me or what I stood for or who I was and things like that. And from the word go, I was constantly being molded into somebody that I was not. I was told to lie about my education. I was told to tell everybody that I wasn't educated. I was told to lie and say that I didn't work. I was told to pretty much lie about everything and anything, including my family, including how successful certain people were. I was basically told to tell this whole web of lies to make his family look better than mine, which made no sense to me because they knew everything about my family when they had actually initially approached for my hand in marriage. So at that time, I thought to myself, am I literally going crazy or am I imagining this but then still I gave it time because I was trying not to bring what I thought would be dishonor onto my family so if you're from a similar background to me so if maybe you're Pakistani or a similar other background and um, know the language Urdu, Punjabi and things like that you will know that the word sabur means patience and it's often thrown around a lot at you so if you say something to an elder and say something like this isn't working oh have sabur it will work out it will happen and things will work out it will pan out God wants this to work God doesn't like divorce God doesn't like you breaking up a union and things like that which is absolutely fine. I fully understand that. A lot of things can be fixed with patience, but where there is no love, no respect, and no interest whatsoever in another person, apart from their visa um, application, which is going to come through that person, or their status, or the money, or so on and so forth, then no, patience isn't going to fix it. Now, it took me many, many years to figure that out, but I eventually did figure that out. So my now ex-husband comes to the UK, and things still spiral out of control. I was working because he couldn't. Um, I was looking after the house because God forbid he was to actually do anything around the house because brown men are not supposed to. And when I say brown men, I'm not talking about all brown men. I'm talking about a certain type within the cultural system that are taught that women are beneath them and that women are meant to do all the stuff because they are meant to do it regardless. So I was working. I was earning more than him when he did start to work. I was looking after the house and when I came back from work I would ask him what he wanted to have for dinner and of course he wasn't cooking while I was out, why would he cook while I was out Uh, and then he used to tell me he wanted to cook stuff that would took two to three hours to actually cook so I'd come back from work and then I'd cook these lavish dishes. I was looking after the actual house as well, I was being the perfect wife, I was being the perfect I suppose brown daughter publicly and whilst all of this was going on inside of me was literally dying. I just every day was literally a struggle it was a war with myself I had to force myself to get up in the morning had to force myself to do things because I didn't feel I was living to any purpose and that sounds so dramatic because I was married and for a lot of people that's such a big deal oh you you know you've got an education you've got your family you're married you've got it all what did I have it all I didn't feel like I had it all I felt like I'd actually taken the easy option I'd copped out and I'd actually literally done things that would make people around me happy but not me happy and steadily it became more and more apparent that I was actually right this wasn't going to make me happy whatsoever but I still stuck with it I tried my best to make it work I tried everything and there was still no affection no care no love coming from this person as long as he was fed 
as long as the house was clean and as long as his mummy and daddy's reputation was all good in the hood and they were happy abroad and they were being sent money, everything was absolutely fine. Yet nobody was looking at my needs. Nobody was looking at what I wanted to do or what I needed to do or what I wanted to achieve. Everything was literally about honour, his family honour, not even my family honour anymore. It was about his family honour. As long as his family were all good, nobody was gossiping about them, then everything was absolutely fine. So I continued down this journey and I kept telling myself things would get better. I seriously did not want to bring dishonour to my family and I really did not want to be the one to bring any type of shame to anybody. I didn't want my family to be the family that had to hold their heads, you know, down and not be able to, you know, function as a normal brown family within the community, which years later I figured out, you know, a divorce does not do that to a family. It's the way people think that do that to a family. And I continued on this journey. And then after a long while, uh, we had our first child in 2010. And having my daughter um, really, really opened my eyes up to a lot of things. And a lot of things, including the fact that the culture that my ex-in-laws were in was a really horrendously controlling narcissistic culture including the fact that the names I wanted for my daughter were not good enough because they weren't fashionable and I couldn't use this name because such and such down the road's granddaughter's that name or I couldn't have this name because Sakina down the road's daughter's that name and it was just horrendous even trying to name my own child after having a cesarean and hemorrhaging on an operating table I was not allowed to name my own daughter it was it was not normal for them it's they had to have control and that was just scary and I started suffering from postnatal depression. And during that postnatal depression, I was then forced to visit Pakistan with my daughter. Because if I didn't go with my daughter, he would have taken my daughter anyway, is basically the way it was painted. So I went to Pakistan and um, realised within the trip that I was being treated like nothing. I, I was nothing. I was just a, a pawn piece to the game. And I was treated horrendously as it was. Um, I was basically pushed to one side. I wasn't consulted in any decisions. I was told to continue peddling the lies that they were peddling. So I was still in education. I, I didn't work. I, I wasn't able to work is what I had to tell people um, and things like that. So I had to keep their honour, which is their son was earning and so on and so forth. So continued to do that. And whilst on this trip, um, I wanted to go to my late nan's grave because I'd lost my nan a few years beforehand and she's also buried in Pakistan. So I wanted to go to her grave. And within my own tribe, it's not unusual to um, visit a grave if you're female. And it's also not unusual within my ex-in-laws to visit a grave. And I was told that I couldn't go to the grave. Um, no, I was told basically I couldn't. They would not allow me to visit my nan's grave. And that was absolutely heartbreaking. It was devastating because I reached out to family whilst I was in Pakistan expressing my concern and nobody batted an eyelid at the amount of control or the narcissistic behaviour of my ex-in-laws. So I just thought to myself, maybe it's just me blowing this out of proportion. And because I'd been suffering from postnatal depression and things like that, it was suggested to me by a professional that maybe I should visit my late nan's grave to get closure because I was unable to see her um, during the last few years of her life. And this would help bring closure to me and would help me feel much better in myself. I mean, of course, it's never going to bring my nan back, but it would help with closure.
but they denied me that right. They denied it. And at that time, again, I was questioning my sanity. I really was. I really, really was. But then I continued down again this road because, hey, I'm a good girl. I don't, you know, I'm not going to rock the boat. I'm going to be a good brown girl, a good Muslim girl. And believe it or not, this is nothing to do with Islam. This is completely to do with culture. It's nothing whatsoever to do with religion. And I continued down this path and continued going down it. And then came back to the UK and it was just the same. There was no affection, nothing. He he was pretty cold towards me, but for everybody else, he was like their number one. You know, for the local cricket team, he was one of their star players. For the local community, he was the dude that people turned to and all this stuff. And it's like, wow, but at home, you're just a wanker. You know, you're, you're nothing good. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. And that's the type of environment that I was in. I was basically selling myself short. I was actually accepting this type of number number two behavior, so to speak. Uh, it wasn't even number two. I mean, I wasn't even number two on his priority list. I must have been like ninth or tenth, possibly, even, even further down than that. And I accepted it and I was selling myself short and I didn't have the self-confidence or the self-esteem to actually acknowledge the fact that I was actually destroying myself. Every single day I was destroying myself. So in 2013, I had my second daughter and that triggered even more postnatal depression. And I hadn't really got over the first lot of postnatal depression, but I got into it again and it was just horrendous. I felt absolutely crap. I felt like the crappiest parent on the block because I had no energy to do anything nice with my children. And I felt like I was a crap parent because I was struggling to keep the house clean. I was struggling to cook meals fresh. I was struggling to do everything. And I just felt absolutely sort of crap. I felt like I was an utter failure. And there was nobody in the relationship to say, hey, you know, it's normal for a new parent to struggle. And even if you've already got one child and you have another one, hey, it's a new thing. You've been dealing with one child and then you're going to have another one and it's a new family, it's a new unit. You're going to struggle. But there's no one there to give me that pep talk because he didn't really care. Um, the children were just there because he had to show the marriage was working. That's what they were basically there for. They weren't there because he wanted to have kids. Not at all. It was a case of it's a brown marriage. We showed the marriage is working by having children. And it's a cultural thing. And that's why they were there. They were never, he never wanted children. So that's why he had kids to show the marriage was working. In 2014, so a good 10 years after the engagement and everything else in between, um, in the middle of the night, and I say middle of the night, it's that one, one at one, about 1, one fifteen a.m. in uh, Ramadan 2014, I woke up and I had this excruciating chest pain. It was kind of like numbing pain, but it was horrible pain. And the way I see it is, the way I explain it is, it feels like an elephant was sitting on, on me. Now, I've never had an elephant sit on me. So this is like my imagination saying, yeah, this is how it would feel, Lilia. If an elephant sat on you, this is how it feels. Felt this pain and thought to myself, boy that's hard that's a hard pain but because I was so tired like running around after the children because my youngest was now one I'd spent literally all day taking it on and off the trampoline so I just assumed it was just me being unfit tired and rest of it and that's why I was having all these problems and that's why I was feeling the way I was I ignored that pain and it lasted a good while I thought to myself if I get up now the one-year-old's gonna wake up howling and shouting the building down and I it took me ages to get to bed and 
as many parents out there will tell you, if you struggle to get a child down, you really don't want anybody to wake that child up. So I did not want to wake her up whatsoever. So put up with the pain, tried to get to sleep. I'd say a good half an hour, 45 minutes later, the pain started to subside and I managed to get back to sleep. Woke up the next morning and saw my mum. And the first thing my mum said was that I looked pale, like a ghost. And I explained to her what had happened, that I was in pain and things like that. And she said, maybe I should go and speak to my GP and see what they said. Now, my GP was aware of the fact that I had PND and things like that. So it was it was no news to my doctors that I was, I was suffering, so to speak. So went to see my doctor and I had such an amazing doctor. Dr. Al Sabai was one of the most probably the most amazing doctors I'd ever met in my lifetime. And he was so easy to talk to and I felt confident talking to him when I was trying to explain things. So I explained to him everything that had happened and he said to me, I think you had a breakdown of some kind or possibly a panic attack. And but I don't want to write it off as that. I'm going to send you up to the hospital and what I need you to do is is have some tests done just to make sure everything is absolutely fine and dandy. And then after that, you know, we'll see what we can do to help you cope on a regular basis, which is lovely because that's what you want to hear. You want to hear the support. And I cannot praise the NHS enough for the amazing stuff that they do for people. So went up to the hospital, had an ECG done. So for anybody that has heart problems or has ever had a heart checkup, you'll know it's that like the graph thing with like the, the zigzaggy thing on it. Just checks how your heart's doing and how it's how everything's going. Had one of them done. It seemed okay. And then I had a, a few other tests done, which were blood tests done that I was being told of. They were looking for certain things which could indicate if there was an issue. So I went in around about half past 11, quarter to 12 time. And I was told that if everything was fine, I'd be home for like six o'clock, which was good because I needed to get home to cook for the children because who else would cook for them? So I'm there standing there and I get told that two out of three tests have come back. Everything's fine. Don't worry, they said, you'll be going home soon. And then about five to six, I'm waiting there on the bays where the curtains are, standing there, waiting to go home because it's like, oh, I really need to go home. What am I going to cook for the children? What am I going to do this? What I plan to cook? I haven't got enough time. They're going to want feeding, et cetera, et cetera. And as I stood there, in bursts a nurse with a um, wheelchair and a doctor. And I can't really remember their exact words, but the next thing I know is I was actually sitting in the wheelchair and the nurse had put some kind of like needle in my leg, which I could have sworn was big like those horse tranquilizers that you see on like the programs with the bats on. And I thought, okay, well, that was a bit dramatic. Um, I'm trying to go home. And th the next thing I heard the nurse say was, you're not going home today, sweetheart. Um, you've had a heart attack. So I sat there on the wheelchair and responded with um can someone let my mum know because I need someone to feed the children and and then a little while later as I was being taken up to the cardiac ward I mentioned to the nurse that I was only 31 and she said I know and that was one of the most scariest journeys of my life being ushered from that ward on the ground floor up to the cardiac ward where I was taken into this room and 
I was basically rigged up instantly to a load of wires and uh, I actually asked them if I'd be like going home the next day and they said no you won't be because we need to run more tests so we need to see what we can do to fix the issue that you've got now because you've had a heart attack and I think at that time I was basically ignoring what they were saying I was trying to like pretend they weren't saying what they were saying and I can remember one of the other doctors coming in and saying that the reason I'd been given my own room is because I'm pretty much the youngest ever that they've had on the ward for the past few years at least and they didn't want to disturb the elderly patients on the ward when my children came to visit and I actually said to him said well if I'm going home soon it's not really going to be an issue if I'm going home tomorrow afternoon etc and he was there going no you're not going home not tomorrow afternoon not until we've kind of got to the bottom of what it is that's you know, we can do to fix this or what triggered it or how it came about because it's a heart attack. It's not just something that's randomly happened. This is a heart attack. So, okay, I had to phone home and tell my mum what had happened. And as you can as you can imagine, mum was just crying because she was like, what do you mean you've had a heart attack? Uh, told her that I had a heart attack told her to I suppose you know look after the kids what else was I meant to say because I didn't even know how severe the heart attack was I didn't even know if I was going to be dropping dead overnight and as I lay on the beds you know they'd like put all the catheters and stuff on so I was like right um what if I need to go to the bathroom and they're like oh no you can't go to the bathroom that's why you've got that there you know if you need the bathroom this is what this is for and I thought oh okay um I'm only 31 and during the night they gave me something to knock me out so that I could actually rest they could see I was restless my blood pressure was saying I was restless and then the next day my ex-husband walked in with the children and basically put the youngest on the end of the bed and she sat there looking at me not knowing what to do and it must be petrifying as a child to see your parent rigged up to all those wires not knowing why and not being able to express your concern and I looked at her and then I saw my other child just looking at me like as in what's happened what's going on and my ex just sat in the corner phoning people and all sorts and he actually phoned <laughs> he actually phoned his mum and she was like oh is it a private room are you wasting money on a private room because you know the UK's got such good health care and just you should be using the NHS and it was like, wow, even at this stage, you, you're more bothered about money and and everything else. You're not actually worried about, worried about me. And then to add insult to injury, he then proceeded to continue to arrange his brother and sister's wedding whilst I was there on the bed. And at this stage, the doctors hadn't actually told me what the next steps were going to be they were still running the tests through the systems and they had to actually come back with a plan so there was my ex planning out the his brother and sister's wedding and how we were all going to be flying out to this wedding and for his mum and dad not to worry it's nothing it's nothing major and all this and all that and things continued to spiral out of control from that point he told everybody that i was lying that i hadn't had a heart attack he even told my mum to stop telling people that I'd had a heart attack because I hadn't had a heart attack and I was making it up and then when I was discharged about a week later um, he proceeded to book plane tickets for his brother and sister's wedding 
even though the doctors had told me I couldn't even leave the area because I hadn't had any type of um, surgery done at that stage. I'd only been given an evaluation of what was going to be happening and things like that. So this was in summer. And I was told that I would be getting most probably some kind of surgery within the next eight to 10 months. So everything just spiralled. He didn't care. He was telling people I was lying. He told them I was doing it for attention. He still wasn't helping with the children. My mum had to step in. And literally, I lost all my social circle that was connected to him. So mutual friends. So where he was friends with the with the husband and I was friends with the wife, they literally all cut me off because apparently I was a drama queen. And they literally pushed me to one side because culturally I was causing dishonour. And I was told that basically they didn't really want to deal with me. And that was some of them that actually said that they weren't going to deal with me. The majority of them just, just didn't respond to any calls or when they found out I'd had a heart attack, didn't even bother to actually contact me or find out how I was doing. Nothing, literally nothing. Not even on social media, nothing. They were like, just literally, just, you know, threw me to one side because I was now a burden or a stain on the reputation of the community. And it was like, wow, I've had a heart attack. I'm the ill one here and I'm being treated like filth or like I've done something wrong. And it's like, how could I have done something wrong? I did not cause my own heart attack. Surely we're educated enough to understand this. Turns out that we weren't. So I'm the bad guy. I caused my own heart attack. I was doing this so that I didn't have to attend the wedding in Pakistan and it's like, whoa, okay, so I brought on a heart attack, so I didn't have to go to the wedding, okay, that, that's just crazy. So after he bought the tickets to the actual wedding, I came back from a appointment from um, with the heart team, and they said that I couldn't leave the country, there was no way, and my mum spoke to my ex-husband before he bought the tickets and said, don't book them because we don't know what's going on. Well, we've got to go. It's about family. It's about this. It's about that. And all this BS to do with culture and honour and all this malarkey came out. There was no mention about my house, no mention about the children, nothing. And I came back from the clinic and I said to him, well, I'm not going because I can't go. My operation won't be done in time. It's not possible. So he got really irate and angry because he was going to lose money on the ticket that he was told not to book and after that things just spiraled out of control the marriage was never existing in the first place it was just a arrangement if you ask me it was just an arrangement for him to get a british passport for his family to build up their social status because if you know anything about tribes within the brown community as much as i don't myself entertain the whole idea of tribes the tribe that I was born into would be classed as a higher tribe than the tribe that he's from so social status really comes into it majorly in the in the homeland in particular and it turns out that he was actually using a a tribal name in the UK that actually belongs to my tribe yeah well he wasn't actually using his own tribal name which is which is weird for me anyway but yeah, everything was spiralled out of control. Um, he decided he was going to attend that wedding and leave me in the UK really, really ill. Like I said, I wasn't able to have an operation at that time. And he decided to choose his brother and sister's wedding over me. So he left me in the UK um, with my 
daughter, the youngest, because the oldest had to attend the wedding. And because she had to attend the wedding, because of honour, my mum decided that she would go with the oldest because the oldest would want at least me there if nobody else there. So my mum took the gamble of flying out to be at the wedding so she could keep an eye on my oldest child. And I'm forever in her debt for doing that because I really didn't feel comfortable with my child going out there, to say the least. And she went out there. I mean, the youngest stayed in the UK. Of course, I knew if anything was to happen to me in the UK, at least I had the NHS. And like I said, I'm forever in debt to them. And I stayed here in the UK with my child and he gallivanted abroad, attended the wedding, bigged himself up, showed off, did the rest. And nobody really gave a crap about the fact that I wasn't there. Nobody cared because there he was showing off with the fact he was now from England. And yeah, he got everything he wanted. He had the status now and the artificial respect of people from abroad because, oh, he's now classed as being British. And people were like all sucking up to him, being all nicey-nicey and extra nice because he's from England now and all this rubbish. And there I was in England, ill, and still trying to comprehend why I'd actually married this person and trying to comprehend what I had to do next. But I did. I did start to break things down and I decided to come up with a plan. But that was the start of the end. Those moments I had in hospital, alone, pondering what I'd done and pondering what had just happened to me, triggered me. Those were my triggers. I needed a trigger because my life was literally, literally going down the pan. Each and every moment I was in that marriage, my life is going down the pan. But I just wasn't actually listening to the signals. And a lot of people don't because it's easier to be in denial than it is to actually accept that you need to take action. So that's what I did. I stayed in denial for as long as I possibly humanly could. And then suddenly, God sends a sign, which literally was a heart attack, to say to me, hey, you know what? You really need to evaluate what you're doing. Life is precious. Life is a gift. Is this all you're going to do with it? Or is this all you're going to do? Cook and clean and spend all day Sunday on the phone talking to Tom, Dick and Harry and everybody else abroad who some of these people, you don't even know who they are. And are you going to constantly do this every single week for the rest of your life? Is this it now? Is this what you want to do? Is this is this your fulfillment? Is this your purpose? And believe it or not, the answer was quite clear right there and then, which is no, this isn't what I want to do with life. This isn't me. I am not fulfilling a purpose. This is certainly not something that I want to be in. I want out of this. And it was so scary, yet I felt empowered and I felt a sense of freedom about what I was going to do once I was out of the situation. But I needed that trigger. I needed that heart attack. That heart attack saved me, which, yeah, sounds dramatic, doesn't it? But it's not an easy thing to go through uh, because now I'm on medication. And I'm likely to be on this medication for life because of my heart attack. But it saved me because it got me back onto the track that I needed to be on. I detoured and I seriously, seriously needed a strong GPS to get me back in line to what it is that I actually, actually needed to do and what I should be doing. And my heart attack gave me that. 
it was a GPS signal that I needed. It was a sign from the divine, from God, from Allah, however you want to address the power. And that was my trigger. And that's how I literally ended up where I am today. So that's my backstory. And that's how I ended up being who I am today. The Aaliyah that you see, that person that seems very confident or that person that seems empowered or that person that seems to know everything. Yes, I have the confidence. Yes, I feel empowered. Do I know everything? No. Do I know about transformation? Yes, I do. So that's why I do what I do because I've been there. I've done that. I've got the t-shirt and I want you guys to know that if I can do it, you can certainly do it. And that's why I'm going to be doing these podcasts. I'm also going to be creating all this content that you guys can tap into and actually design your own transformation, boost your confidence, become empowered, do what it is that you need to do to feel fulfillment, to fulfill whatever it is that you wish to do with your life. So that's the first episode wrapped up. That's a lot to take in for a lot of people. If I have triggered anybody or if this story resonates with you, by all means, drop me a line if you need someone to talk to. If if there's anything in particular that I can possibly assist you with, maybe you want additional information on various different books or things like that that I read when I was at my rock bottom to get back out because trust me I read a lot of lot of lot of books a lot of blogs listened to a lot of videos and all sorts to actually boost myself to get back onto the horse so to speak then I'm more than happy to share that information but if you're now intrigued by my journey or if you're now feeling like yes I need to get back onto the horse and yes I need to push myself with my journey then stay tuned because episode two will be with you very, very soon. So until then, guys, don't forget to like, share, subscribe, and I shall speak to you all very, very soon. Thanks for listening. Bye.